Lord Jesus Christ, you indeed are our King. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts this morning, that we might hear from you. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So the past month has been, for our small congregation, quite the big and large, magnificent transition. We've gone from being a nomadic church to one here in a permanent home. In leading up to this move, those final weeks there in the community center, I preached through the scripture passages that we used for our building consecration service that happened at the end of um, October. And so in Haggai, we learned that in the midst of a diseased and depressed nation, God is still with us. In 1 Peter, we learned that God is raising up his people to be living stones of his holy temple. In Matthew 21, we learned that Jesus desires for his house to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then in Revelation 21, we saw that at the end days, heaven and earth will meet together and all things will be made new. Now, it's one thing to say those things in a stinky gymnasium, and another thing, I think, to say here in the midst of this beautiful sanctuary. I think even here, we have to be even more passionate about reminding ourselves of these biblical truths and where our allegiances might actually um, lie. So, oh God, may this truly be a house of worship and a house of mission in your name. Well, if you are familiar with the church calendar, and if you're familiar with the changing of the church seasons, you know that we have just stepped into some really strange times. We are approaching Advent, uh, and as uh, Fleming Rutledge says, she says, some of you who know the church calendar might be getting goosebumps right now, because we're approaching Advent, and this is the time in which our scripture lessons, which you no doubt heard, turn to be quite apocalyptic. We hear about global disasters, We hear about the fall of nations and earthquakes and storms that plague this world. And in these readings, time itself becomes kind of confusing. Even the disciples are asking, when is this supposed to happen, Jesus? N.T. Wright calls these Sundays, the Sundays that is in between All Saints Day, which was last week, and uh, Christ the King Sunday, which is going to be next week, N.T. Wright calls these Sundays Kingdom Sundays. And then the next week, we will descend into Advent. So these Kingdom Sundays, and even more so in Advent, that's when it really gets turned up, are very apocalyptic in their tone. And this is an invitation for us to take an honest assessment of the darkness of our world and pray earnestly for Christ's kingdom of light to break forth. So these two major themes that I just mentioned, the transition into a building and then also our descent into the apocalyptic, those two themes converge in today's reading from Mark, don't they? Jesus is walking out of this beautiful temple, this glorious temple. The disciples are quite proud of it, as they should be. It was a glorious place. And they say, oh, Jesus, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this admirable, Jesus? Can you imagine how shocked they were at his response? How blown away they were? All these great buildings are soon going to be turned into rubble, he said. So imagine how terrifying it would be if uh, attorneys from Minneapolis walked in here and they uh, they said, actually, we found an error in the purchase agreement 
this building does not belong to you. This is an illegal acquisition, and we're going to put a for sale sign out front and turn this into condos. Imagine how horrifying that would be, not just to us, to our congregation, but to those dear Lutherans who gave us this building. You know, their heritage, to see it turned over into condos like that would be absolutely terrifying. Well, that's exactly how those, well, and more so, uh, is how the disciples felt at Jesus' shattering words. He is prophesying that the center of Jewish economic, religious, and cultural life was about to be destroyed. Jesus never really offers great encouragement for prosperity or triumphalistic uh, versions of Christianity, does he? (laughs) He seems to shatter those. He, He also, in this passage, is giving us both realistic and hopeful views of the Christian faith. Christian living is hard, Jesus says, so stay on your guard. Be on your guard, he says in this passage. So what exactly are we supposed to be on guard for? Well, let's look into our passage, into Mark. So looking at the temple, Jesus says, there will not be one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So several weeks ago, uh, we had the the pleasure of Bishop Julian Dobbs with us from Virginia, and I gave him a tour of the building, and he turned to me at one point and said, there will not be one stone placed upon another that won't be turned down. No, I'm kidding. He didn't say that. That would be terrible. He was a very polite New Zealander. He would never say anything like that. No, but what he did say, he, as, as we showed him like the stained glass and, and just other beautiful elements of the building, he would say, oh, impressive, impressive. And he said it in this very like charming New Zealand accent. Now, I couldn't help but wonder, and maybe this is just like the pessimist in me, the, the doubter in me. Uh, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe in his polite repetition of the word impressive, there was actually a very subtle, implicit, maybe, warning in his words. Yes, this is an impressive and and beautiful building, but don't let it distract you from your mission. Now, maybe if he didn't mean that, and perhaps if he would listen to this sermon later, he would firmly deny that. I did feel that nudging of the Holy Spirit. It's like, yes, this is impressive. Yes, this is amazing what God has done for us but may it not distract us from our mission. It's such a temptation, isn't it, for us to always be dazzled by our own accomplishments and even sort of take ownership of the accomplishments of others and and sort of arrogantly um, uh, just be obsessed with those things. Whether it's holy sanctuaries or beautiful liturgies or it's vibrant ministries, our hope must transcend all those things and focus on the goodness of Christ himself so I think one of the things that, God, that Jesus is calling us to guard ourselves against in this passage is vain religion. Nations rise and fall, but the word of the Lord endures from generation to generation. Now, if followers aren't supposed to put their trust in buildings, then neither should they blindly trust in everyone who comes in the name of Christ, as we see in this passage. The world isn't short of people who leverage Jesus Christ his name, his church, for their own fame and glory. You just have to survey some of the headlines of the last six months or so to see the truth of that. And then in verse 7, Jesus says that in the end days there will be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. What in the world does all of this mean? Well, in the last days, the church itself, both nation and nature, will be in complete turmoil. 
Now, scholars debate over the timing of Jesus' words here. Several decades after Jesus' crucifixion, the Jewish world would, in fact, be turned upside down. There would be a, a revolt among the Jews against the Roman oppressors. And then Rome, who has no tolerance for such things, rolled in at 70 AD and absolutely leveled Jerusalem, including this temple. So Jesus' words were fulfilled quite literally in that moment. But also there's some elements of this passage that don't quite have a clear fulfillment in 70 AD. You see, Jesus seems to be pulling apocalyptic language from some of the prophets describing the end times. So which is it? Is Jesus talking about 70 AD or is he talking about the end times? So when I was a teenager, maybe, uh, so I'm, I'm 39 right now, so you, I'll let you all kind of figure out when I was a teenager, like what, 90s or so? But it was this, this uh, Christian fiction series called Left Behind was super popular. Oh yeah, a lot of you are nodding your heads. <laughs> okay, great. So we're in this together, yeah. Yeah, all the, all the young kids are like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that's, that's probably a good thing, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, I wouldn't recommend uh, this series for like a theological sort of treatise or coursework. Um, there were many things in there that would be head scratchers to us all, I think. But in spite of its theological oddities, there were some biblical elements to it that I think were equally as embarrassing. It's a story of bizarre uh, na- natural events happening, natural disasters, global political events that are unfolding, and somehow these things are coordinated to bring about the end of the world. Do Christians actually believe that? And like your neighbors probably wouldn't say this to your face, but if you were to share with them that you believe things like that, they would think that you're crazy. Like do Christians actually believe that? Well, given the constant unrolling and unrolling of unprecedented events, I'm so tired of that phrase, unprecedented events, of the last two years, maybe we should take these apocalyptic writings in the Bible a bit more seriously. We're experiencing a global pandemic that's caused millions of deaths. Religious leaders and entire denominations are crumbling in the midst of shameful scandals. Our governmental leaders are gridlocked in such political division that they're completely inept at accomplishing anything to address the crises of this day. And we can debate the semantics of climate change, but I don't think anyone can deny that the increasing violent hurricanes and heat waves uh, have just been magnifying as the years go on here. People who study Christianity across the globe are saying that today, more Christians are being persecuted around the world than at any time in human history. Persecutions, false teachers, political turmoil, natural disasters. These aren't elements of some future distant age. These are things that are happening right now. So how are we supposed to guard ourselves? How are we supposed to, what sort of encouragement does Jesus give us in the midst of this? Well, Jesus, or in in Mark's gospel, the Holy Spirit is actually not mentioned very frequently. But Jesus says that in the midst of calamity, Christians will be betrayed by those who we love. What piercing, haunting words that we read this morning. But also will be delivered over to corrupt counsels, beaten and put to death. And his charge in the midst of that is to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it to all nations, wherever you might be taken. Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners. And that he will come again to make all things new. And I love those comforting words. 
Do not worry about the exact words to say in those difficult moments. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. And I'm sure for those original listeners of Jesus' word, those, those uneducated, poor people, I'm sure that that was of immense encouragement, that they would stand up to the most intimidating, powerful people of their day, and the Holy Spirit would actually speak through them. Persecutions, suffering, and turmoil will always be opportunities to proclaim the salvation of God. And thankfully, ours is not a God who hasn't walked this path himself. When we call Jesus our Lord and our Savior, we must remember how it was that he accomplished our salvation. Jesus himself was betrayed by loved ones. Jesus himself was delivered over to corrupt counsels. Jesus himself was beaten and put to death. He went to a cross and God raised him from the dead. So when Jesus calls us down the path of suffering, it's a path that he himself knows all too well. Jesus says, follow me in this passage. So last week I walked us through the story of this stained glass and how it tells us, uh, it it takes us through the life of Christ starting with uh, his birth in Bethlehem and ending with the portrayal of Christ the King uh, on that portrait over there. And I, I talked about how this very room, how this very space invites us to make our home in Jesus Christ. But I think we have more Um, resources, brothers and sisters, than even our space. I think the time that we inhabit, that we inherit from our spiritual mothers and sisters, also invites us to take refuge and shelter in the life of Christ. So I've already spoken a little bit about the season of Advent, in which we patiently await for Christ's coming. But then in the season of Christmas, we we celebrate that Jesus experiences our own humanity, And then in Epiphany, Jesus calls the disciples and he forms the church and he sends her out in mission to proclaim the gospel. And then in Lent, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He takes upon him all the sins of the world and he takes that agony and experiences death upon a cross. And then in the Easter, Jesus raises from the tomb, vindicating his supreme sacrifice and making a mockery of death itself. And then at Pentecost, we celebrate Jesus ascending up into heaven and then pouring out his spirit upon all flesh, invigorating invigorating us with his breath, with his life, and with his spirit. This isn't just some sentimentalized, nostalgic reenactment that we participate in every year. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are actually bound to Christ through these moments. We participate in his life. We participate in his death, therefore preparing ourselves for hardships in this world. And so my charge to you this morning, my encouragement to you this morning, is to commit yourself to walking with Christ over the course of this next year, from Advent all the way through Pentecost. Will you submit yourself to the path that your spiritual mothers and fathers have prepared for us, that they themselves have walked and are now inviting you to walk to? Will you allow your time, your calendar itself, to be shaped according to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? One of the beautiful things that we have as as Christians who walk in the great tradition of the church is to experience this church calendar. The way in which we experience time itself orients us to the life of Christ. N.T. Wright says that the world is going to be plunged into convulsions, and followers of Jesus are called to live at a place where the purposes of God 
and the pain of the world cross paths with each other. The purposes of God and the pain of the world cross paths with each other. That's where you and I, brothers and sisters, that's where Restoration Anglican is called to stand. Purposes and pain. The glory of faith in Christ is that we are not saved from suffering, but it is in suffering we are joined to Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, as we approach the end of this church year and step into a new one, may we die to all which you have died so that we shall live to all that which you have risen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.